0: are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast. with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Simon Rue. He's a research scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab. We're gonna be talking about uh, viruses of microbes, I guess, uh, phages. Mm -hmm. So Simon, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah. If you would tell me about your uh, your work and what you do.
2: So I am technically a research scientist at the um, Joint Genome Institute, uh, which is part of Berkeley Lab. And uh, in there, I'm uh, part of the metagenome program where I lead the newly funded um, virus genomics, which is a very long way of saying um, I am using what's nowadays called omics data to look at viruses in the environment.
1: Okay, so you're looking at the uh, the genetic composition of viruses, but uh, what other omics seem to apply well to viruses?
2: Um, I would argue everything, but yes, we are primarily looking at the genetic materials. Uh, these are kind of the backbone on which we, we base a lot of our study. So this would be the genome, the fundamental you know piece of, what defines a virus. But then we can use um, metatranscriptomes, which will tell you something about the activity of the virus. Is the virus here just dormant, or is it actually actively infecting or repurposing a host cell? And then we can also look at metabolomics. So, you know, the vast array of compounds uh, in, in the environment. And that would be more to look at what is the um, ultimate impact of viral infections on on these microbiome. so once you have a virus infecting a host what happens to the metabolites that are excreted or secreted and how does this change the whole functioning of the ecosystem so that's what we are trying to get at by using this um, quote-unquote multi-omics uh, that is pretty trendy right now
1: do um i know viruses are supposedly passive until they uh you know they they attached to a receptor on a cell, but Mm -hmm. do viruses have a metabolism? Do they utilize sugars to, you know, to open themselves up and gain entry to a a cell and carry out activities? Or how do they, I don't know, they're strange.
2: So as far as we know, um, they don't really have a metabolism outside of the host cell. The way we think about viruses, is really these two stages where, uh, like you just mentioned, um, when they are outside of the host cell, they are this kind of inactive protein shell, sometimes with a few lipids uh, protecting a genome and kind of waiting for the next host. Um, Then there is a second stage, which is when they go in the host. And that's where the whole metabolism things come into play because um, viruses don't just come into the host and kill the host. There is a vast, vast diversity of of interaction that can happen in this host cell. Some infections um, go on for a very, very long time and they have themselves multiple steps. And all along the way, the functioning of the host cell will be modified by the presence of the virus. And so maybe the host cell will um, use a little more of compound X or compound Y. Maybe it will uh, create a little more energy because that's the virus will need. It's really a a, a full-on reprogramming that the virus is doing to the host cell to its own um, interest. But eventually, this will have an effect on the whole uh, microbiome.
1: Can you tell uh, by sequencing a virus, uh, you know, phylogenetically, what what it will be like, can you tell what, what it will do to a cell, like, you know, does what there extent? a database of uh, a viral DNA or RNA, you know, how extensive is it so far?
2: So we are, we are building it actually. So um, the reason why we are not there yet in part is because it's very, very long and complicated to um, obtain an isolate, a cultivated isolate, I should say, of all viruses. You know, we are talking uh, um, numbers like astronomical, like reading really the, and the, very first um, sense of the term, you know, it's. I think the number of virus particles on Earth is something in the order of magnitude that the number of stars in the galaxy, or maybe even more than this. I mean, it's really massive diversity on Earth, and so getting all of these viruses in the lab with their host and having them grow. Is is a nearly impossible task. So what has really changed is this omics approaches where we can go into an environment, sequence what's there, and then from this pool of sequences we can identify which ones are viral. And that has really changed our view of what you just described, like this, you know, this global database of virus genomes. And just to give you some numbers, we went from having a catalog of something like a few thousand virus genomes about five to six years ago. To the latest release of um, our own jGI database, uh, which will include more than two million virus genomes and and so we have this massive exponential growth, and we are not seeing um you know the end inside basically like we will keep discovering new virus genomes for the foreseeable future. I would say at least for the next five years we'll keep um just building and building this massive database of virus genomes as we sequence more and as we go to different environments.
1: How many different viruses do you think there are? Hundreds of millions or billions or
2: not that many? Yeah, I yeah, probably tens of billions of billions. Um, my, my best guesstimate is basically so far we have at least a few viruses for every single species on Earth that we have looked at. So like if you have a cellular species somewhere, you have at least one virus infecting these species, if not more. So then you can you know kind of assume that there will be more different types of viruses and you know... Types of hosts, and we already know if you count all the diversity of hosts, including microbes, these numbers are in the you know billions of billions. So yeah, it's it's, in, yeah, it's incredibly large.
1: And then I guess there's some viruses that have proviruses that prey on them, so that expands it even further.
2: Yeah, yeah, that, that's a very uh, unique and peculiar situation with with um, giant viruses and and the viruses that seems to be attached to them and infect them. Um, we're still looking in this kind of virus-virus dynamics. That's a very, very um, new part of the field, uh, I should say. This idea that viruses can interact with other viruses when they co-infect the same cell. Uh, so we are still looking at you know, what type of host will be um, most likely to host this kind of interactions and what type of viruses will be most likely to uh, engage in this type of interactions. And then you can also look at whether these interactions will be... Um, antagonistic or synergistic. Some viruses actually um, just piggyback on another virus cycle without really uh, harming it. Some, like uh, the virophages and the giant viruses, seems to uh, actually lead to a decrease in the big virus cycle. So it's really just antagonistic at this point. So that's where we got this virus infecting another virus. But others seems to be synergistic. Said otherwise, the co-infection is better for both viruses than individual infection. So we have this whole um, range of potential interactions between viruses we are just starting.
1: Oh, well, what are some of the viral interactions you've seen? Is it like, uh, are they using cells to do like some kind of viral quorum sensing?
2: Um, we, we have seen some of it, and that's also relatively new. Um, part of the um, sensing that the virus needs to do once it infects a host is basically trying to understand or decide what is the best strategy uh, go through. A virus infecting a host can, or at least I should say some viruses, can go through different um, infection types. They can go to the lytic infection, what's called the lytic infection, which is let's take over the whole cell, create new viruses and kill it. Or they can go to more chronic or lysogenic infection, which is more let's reside in the cell and let it go and grow and divide and maybe later we'll go through the all killing thing. And so making this decision um, is probably or probably has to do with things like resources available to the cell, but also what are other viruses doing around it. So it's it's this kind of classic, um, you know, predator or parasite paradox where the parasite, in this case a virus, will eventually kill the host, but it also needs to be sure that there is another host next to it, or at least there is another host at one point, otherwise both are doomed.
1: Yeah, I would heard that um, viruses can change uh, from lytic to lysogenic and back and forth, depending on the host conditions. You know, if the things get bad, it's like rats right. abandoning the ship and then they say, we're out of here, forget it. And they, they exactly. start killing.
2: Yeah, so that, that's the main um, regulation we know about is basically, um, it seems to be stress. So if you are a virus and you are lysogenic, meaning you are in the cell and waiting for things to happen, if your host cell gets stressed, and stressed in a broad sense, you know, it can be nutrient stress, it can be UV, it can be any, you know, chemical stress, then there are some regulations that will trigger your lytic cycle. And like you just said, it's exactly, it's just like, this ship is sinking, let's just take the most out of it and just, you know, get out of it. Um, Now there seems to be some more um, subtle or maybe some more unexpected regulation, Uh, something that has just come out uh, over the last few years that seems to be pretty um, common, at least in soil, is a regulation based on how many infected hosts are around me. And that's more of the current sensing type of thing. So the idea would be if I'm a a a lysogenic virus, but every host around is already infected by another virus, maybe copies of myself, And I don't want to trigger the lytic cycle because there is not really an uninfected host. So there is no host available, even if there are host cells around. But when my infection rate goes down, and so there are more and more hosts that have no infection, then I can trigger my lytic cycle and go and propagate. So it's kind of this potential very nice regulation of trying to keep at a very high infection rate. But once I get there, trying to have relatively few or little impact in terms of killing the host cell, because at this point, there is no, no real benefits from it.
1: So do you think that's why there's a latency of infection? You know, someone can have a viral load and it, 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 they don't appear sick until all of a sudden they're sick because of this, this quorum sensing?
2: I, th- I think that's definitely at play. Um, and and we, we definitely see some dynamics um, that would suggest possible in nature. Um, we recently have been uh, surveying the um, phage host pair, in a lake for which we have more than 10 years of metagenomics data. So that's a very, very nice system because you can go back in time almost and say, okay, here is my phage host pair in 2018, but what did it look like in 2005? And what happened in between? And how do the, um, you know, abundance of both the phage and the host change? And one thing that came out of it was some virus and host seems to be engaged in an extremely stable interaction, I should say. And by that, I mean... We are nearly 100% infection rate, as much as we can estimate. So basically, we have as much as the virus as much as the host in any sample. And neither the host or the virus seems to be really changing that much across multiple years. And that's something that was surprising, because when you think about viruses, you think about, you know, fast changing arms race, things like, you know, there is an infection and then there is a defense and then there is a counter defense. And, you know, things just keep like changing um, over and over and over again. But it seems like some latent viruses can just um, enter some very stable interaction with the host over, like I said, just multiple years in this case, in in this uh, one lake.
1: Do you think that that it's always a parasitic relationship or it could be mutualistic? You know, the virus is is benefiting the the host in some way?
2: That's, yeah, that's a good question. It's most likely that viruses exist uh, along this gradient from mutualistic to um, parasitic. Um, fully mutualistic viruses are probably relatively rare. The closest we have from this is um, probably these phages which infect bacteria and are called filamentous phages or enoviruses um, And these are pretty special because what they can do is they can replicate and create a new virion without killing the host cell. They have a mechanism by which they can extrude their genome and form a new virus particle which will be infectious but the host cell remains intact. And so in this case, at this point, we we are really at like as close, as mutualistic as we can when these viruses also provide some fitness advantage to the host, which some of them do. So that's probably the extreme, like the extreme of the range in terms of going as mutualistic as you can for a virus.
1: Well, what if they, um, you know, you said you're looking at omics. What if they allow, you know, a host to um, take advantage of a certain metabolite or you know, uh, changes gene expression so that it can exist in its vi- environment better and function more properly.
2: So that's, that's the kind of things we're looking at. Um, so far, we have not seen, um, let's see, the clearest examples we have is actually not from the environment, but from human health. And that's because, of course, we have looked at these systems uh, in much greater depth. But what I'm thinking here is um, situations where the virus is conferring toxicity to the bacterial host. So in that case, um, bacteria is... Relatively benign, But then phage and the latent virus encode genes that can confer toxicity and, and provide toxicity to the host. And that means the host will fare better because now it can um, either infect a larger host or it can, for instance, um, kill other bacteria around which um, they compete with for resources. So that's what we have looked at so far. That's what we have found so far. In terms of metabolism, we have not seen a lot of complementation, like fully-blown viruses bringing entire new capacity to the host. Uh, It seems to be relatively rare. We have seen some um, potential for it in the largest viruses, which infect um, eukaryotic uh, algae, but in bacteria and phages, We have not seen that that much. And and so far, what we have seen in in phages is mostly cases where the virus wants to tweak the metabolism of the cell. So not so much confer a new ability, but maybe, you know, change the regulation and and make it go more towards that pathway than this other, or maybe, you know, changing the rate of the reaction as well. Cells are very controlled and um, highly regulated um, mechanisms, which are, you know, Evolve to be stable and and be able to uh, sustain uh, through full growth cycle and divide and so on. And the virus doesn't care that much about this regulation. The virus typically wants a lot of energy and a lot of basic components to make more viruses, and uh, they want it right now. So there is, as far as we can see from now, a lot of um, resources involved into making sure that the cell is tweaked and, and provide all the energy it can at the exact moment the virus needs.
1: Yeah, but, um, do you see that do viruses act like jealous girlfriends you know when other viruses come around do they do they help the cell to keep out other viruses or to you know so to act in such a way as to protect their you know protect their relationship
2: correct no that's definitely something we have seen um like i was saying like um prophages or phages conferring toxicity is one big part that we have seen but uh, phages conferring resistance to other phages is mm. definitely something we have seen so it's it's a Weird mutualistic relationship, right? Because eventually, this phage, which is conferring resistance now, will kill the same host cell. It's helping, but for for time at least, it will be
0: mutualistic and it will
2: be helpful for the host cell because it will, you know, provide this
0: protection. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
1: So, what um, are you focusing on? Phages that affect bacteria, or are you looking at? you know, viruses that affect humans? What's your focus?
2: So we are looking at, um, you know, phages infecting bacteria, viruses infecting archaea, and then we are also looking a little uh, at um, viruses infecting protists. So um, because of the way we work, we are not looking at human viruses or animal viruses or plant viruses at all. Our focus is really, um, and that's what I call this, is viruses of microbes, for lack of a better term. But It's really viruses infecting all of microbial life. Um, eventually, it will have impact on you know humans and animals and plants because we all live in very close relationships with microbiomes, but we are really looking at the viruses mm. infecting these microbes rather than viruses.
1: Do archaea or protists, do they form complex structures like bacteria do, like biofilms and things like that?
2: Oh yeah, and there are like mixed um, archaea and bacteria or protist and bacteria structures. Yeah, yeah, you can have biofilms, you can have uh, massive blooms, for instance, of eukaryotic of protists in the ocean that are so big you can see them from
1: space. So have you looked at viral dynamics when there's uh, a biofilm versus, uh, you know, individual cells? And you, do you see any key differences there? Or?
2: So biofilm do uh, make a difference. And, and more generally... Um, there is this growing understanding that um, spatial structure and, and super fine scale spatial structure will um, be a key driver of our resource dynamics in a system. Now, we still are somewhat struggling with being able to um, investigate and explore this impact of spatial structure because we, we typically have methods that are disruptive, right? We, we take a gram of soil, And we just like blend it together and sequence everything from it. Within this gram of soil, there was tons of small pockets and uh, places where there were viruses, places where there was just a biofilm and no viruses, this kind of thing. So we we are still kind of um, in the process of developing approaches that will eventually let us um, address this more. But definitely, and biofilm is a big part of it. Um, biofilm is actually sometimes a resistance mechanism in the sense that viruses are physically prevented from accessing the inner parts. And that's where the bacteria or you know the microbe can just grow free of uh, viral predation. So it's definitely something um, that's uh, important in nature. We just can't really address it very well right now.
1: Yeah, I would think that in a given population of bacteria that they would have a heterogeneous infection some would be infected with a certain phage others would be infected with because they're infected i would think that the the phage that infects them tries to keep other phages out so i would think that you know if you look at at a population you'd see a heterogeneous distribution because of that or is that not the case
2: no we we do see this we actually see both um sometimes we actually see this heterogeneous uh, this heterogeneity between um you know, members of the population that are infected by phage A, members infect HB, and other members that could be resistant to both phages. And because there is a cost to resistance in terms of um, most often um, metabolism, the resistant um, members don't just take over the whole thing. So you, you see this kind of fluctuating dynamics, but eventually all of these different systems survive. And sometimes we see one population being fully infected by this one set. Um, so, so we definitely see both. Um, we think that's also something that has to do with what's called life history trait of the host. So in essence, host population that um, goes through very strong bottlenecks where, you know, there will be like stark reduction in population numbers and then uh, very quick and, and big expansion. Think of something like a blooming um, bacteria or also pathogens in the human system you know bacterial pathogens will start from a relatively small number and then just like grow very quickly we think these hosts are more prone to be um, infected at 100 percent or almost 100 percent by the same kind of phage and so in in these cases you would have more of a homogeneous infection while um populations that are um, more diverse initially and don't go through these bottlenecks and that's you know things like cyanobacteria in the ocean, for instance, we see a lot of diversity in both host and phage. And so this seems to be a more heterogeneous uh,
1: system. When, when you have a system, I don't know if this has been studied, that has a heterogeneous infection, how, how different are the bacteria? They're the same strain, but they're infected by different types of phage. Does that make them very different?
2: Do they interact in the same way or does it change their interaction? That's a good question. I don't As far as I know, this has not been studied very much yet. Um, There is a theoretical, at least, framework that would say, in theory, phage predation could eventually drive speciation within microbes. So say otherwise, because part of the population will be infected by phage A and other will be infected by phage B, this will trigger changes in both hosts and viruses. And with time, they could differ so much that they will become two different populations. That has been kind of looked at very quick or, you know, on short, um, scale, but, but we are still not, um, fully understanding and, you know, in a quantitative manner, how this process actually happens and where, and, and does it actually drive speciation?
1: Yeah, it's very complicated. Um, how many, I I know it depends on the, the strain, but how many different phage have been observed to, um, to interact with a given strain of bacteria? Was there one in particular that's been studied a lot, and you know, many different phages characterized?
2: So there is um, one case um, where, and it's, yeah, it's, I need to tell the, the story because there is a background here, which is very interesting. Um, so there is a program called C-Phage, uh, which is with University of Pittsburgh and HHMI, if I remember correctly. The idea here is it's, um, I think it's a full semester of undergrad where, the idea is okay. It's a two-semester. Sorry, it's a discovery-based undergraduate research course. So um, University of Pittsburgh sent, uh or can send to undergraduate classes around the world some hosts, and in this case, they use um, Mycobacterium smegmatis, which um, Mycobacteriums are found in soils very commonly. So they are pretty common um, soil microbes. And then during the two semesters, students go through the process of um, you know sampling some soil or wastewater or you know any sample they want. Isolating phages from this um, environment, and then characterizing this phage, including sequencing and annotating their genome. that's a very successful program. I think it's an absolutely great uh, research course for undergraduate. but the follow up from this is we have a lot of isolates for viruses or phages infecting this specific strain of mycobacterium that's you know kind of an, on an insane level where no lab could have done this. And clearly there is a pretty broad diversity of phages infecting this one single host. So there are a number of questions around this. Um, one is maybe some of these phages can infect this host in the lab, but it's not the quote unquote real host and it's not the only host. So you know maybe it can infect this strain, uh, but when it's in the soil, it's actually infecting a different strain and it's much more efficient. But you know if you just push them together in the lab, it still works. Um, And then we're also starting to see the saturation. And I don't remember the number from the top of my mind, but I think it's a few hundred phage types, um, you know, at which we start to see a plateau. And and nowadays there are less and less completely new type of phages being discovered for this one host. So I guess overall, there is this one host species for which we seem to have saturated the associated phage space. And now we have to start to make sense of why do we see so many different phages and are all these phages really infecting this host
1: in nature? How many different phages appear to be affecting <coughs> the, the organism you're describing?
2: So that's that's what I need to double check because I, uh, I don't have the number from top of my mind. But uh, let's see. It seems like for mycobacterium, they have... 1910 phages, that's distinct wow. phage strains. Um, some of them are nearly like identical or nearly identical, but um, all of them come from different samples anyway. So even if you uh, identify two exactly identical phages, if you find them one in the US, one in New Zealand, it's also very interesting to see this identical phage in uh, such remote location. So yeah, there are a lot of things um, being done around these data sets. It's absolutely...
1: Useful. Yeah, I wonder, if, I know we're crossing back into people, but... Maybe um, I would think that, again, different viruses would be able to target, well, they do target different cell types, as we've seen, like, with, you know, coronavirus. Um, mm-hmm. But also as you age and the membranes of your your cells, you know, acquire different receptors or some are up or down regulated or as your environment changes, that would allow you to be, you know, preyed upon by different viruses or not preyed upon, you know, immunity, et cetera. So, yeah, I would guess over time, no microbe or no person would, respond to the same cohort of phages all the time. And I wonder, you know, how does that change, let's say a person or a bacteria, you know, if a bacteria successfully wards off certain phages and then its conditions change and now it, it can't ward them off or new phages, you know, uh, infected and it changes the bacteria substantially. Like you said earlier, maybe it's guiding its evolution or it's, just, it's at least changing its, its I don't know, maybe its, it's gene expression. Maybe it's changing it
2: to a large degree, I don't know. Um... I would say we don't know that very well. Um, but yes, uh, in a sense, phenotypic changes in the host will definitely influence the way um, bacteria will be able to, um, or rather phages will be able to infect bacteria. I think one of the pretty cool examples of this, and actually back to the human microbiome, is how um, phage predation and antibiotic resistance um, somewhat surprisingly are connected. So, you know, in the human microbiome, you will have bacteria that are resistant to some antibiotics, but in some cases, they use a system, a molecular system to gain this resistance that can be targeted by phages. So phages use this um, protein that are expressed on the um, surface of the bacteria and used to uh, uh, fight against antibiotics. And phages use these proteins to attach to the host and, and infect this host. And so at this point, that means if you are infected by this phage, I mean, if you are resistant to this antibiotic, then you will be attacked by this phage. And the other way around, if, if you lose the resistance to the antibiotic, then you gain the resistance to the phage, but you can't have both, or it's very difficult to have both. And that's one of the um, aspects that has been um, studied um, recently and, and is very promising in trying to use phages to alter bacterial phenotype uh, in nature, or in this case, in, in, in human microbiomes.
1: Yeah, that could be a major way by which bacteria acquire resistance. Um if I take an antibiotic and that predisposes a certain bacteria, if it, if it doesn't kill the bacteria in me, a certain one, but it predisposes it to phage predation of a phage that didn't attack it before, maybe that phage confers resistance, you know, because it now it can infect it and it can can provide the resistance to it. So maybe that's a dynamic that we're not seeing.
2: Yeah, that's, that's definitely something that uh, is being explored as far as even therapeutics. Um, you know, antibiotics have been, great for us, but I've also shown their limits recently. Um, phages um, as infectious agents of these bacteria have tremendous potential to help us um, mitigate um, these bacterial infections. And and clearly there is a complicated interplay between um, what would be antibiotics, what would be engineered or selected phages, and also what is the human um, immune system like the patient immune system is also um, interaction so it's not early day but it's it's still being worked out let's say Um, but pretty clearly there are some promising results in that giving antibiotics coupled with specific phages that would target bacteria that can gain resistance to the antibiotics works better than giving the antibiotics alone
1: yeah i guess people have the microbiome but they also have a virome
2: Mm -hmm. so
1: do bacteria have a phageome is that what it's called has anyone described it as such
2: um, I think so. I would have to double check on Google. But yeah, I, th- I think phageome has been uh, used. Um, definitely what, what you can, you know, we, we typically think of viruses of bacteria as part of the microbiome in a way. But, you know, as, as soon as you have some microbes, you know they are associated with a range of viruses. That's, that's pretty much a given at this point until we find a counterexample. And so far we haven't.
1: But if I was to ask, does a bacteria have a microbiome? Maybe a bacteria has a phageome and that's its micro microbiome essentially.
2: Um,
1: yeah, it would be nanobi- sli- yeah.
2: yeah, it would be slightly different in the type of interactions. But but yeah, you can see this kind of Russian door interactions for sure.
1: Yeah, it's weird. It's really weird. Well, very good. Um, what, what big questions do you think that you're hot on the trail of? What do you think that you're going to be able to shed light on in the near future?
2: Um, that's, you know... What we're really looking at right now is is trying to scale uh, actually both down and up. Um, I kind of mentioned it already, but we we are trying to push methods to get into this fine scale resolution of virus host dynamics, you know, being able to go in a biofilm structure and understand where and how viruses infect their host um, successfully, uh, being able to go um, you know, in a a milliliter of water and see if there are any specific structure here, you know, there might be clumps, there might be particles to which bacteria attach and phages might also be attached, this kind of, and that's kind of the scaling down effect. And I think we will learn a whole lot in the next few years when we um, start to gather more data, which are at this very fine scale level, you know, a few cells, some substructure or even one single cell. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we are also working on trying to scale up in the sense of what do viral infections actually, um, or how do viral infections um, reflect at the ecosystem level, at the microbiome level, let's say. So let's say you have a microbiome, it's relatively complex. You have a number of bacteria and archaea and, and let's say a number of microbes in there. We have various infections going on. And so you can try to model this, this microbiome and, and find which, which are the key traits you need to model to get a good understanding of um, metabolism and you know input and output basically now can we get a good understanding of which traits associated with viruses we need to incorporate in these models so that these virus impacts are properly um, taken into consideration and and included overall in our model and so that's that's kind of these two aspects is going down to the single cell and and very small scale and going up to the ecosystem modeling that i think will be Um, Very fascinating to watch in the next few years. And and we are definitely working in these two areas.
1: Well, very good. Uh, So Simon, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go?
2: Um, They should probably go to both the Berkeley Lab and the JGI website. And also we have both um, JGI and Berkeley Lab Twitter account, as well as my Twitter account, which is um, simru__virus.com. Uh, and people can just follow the, you know, follow what we do here. Follow what we also like. A lot of retweets of lots and lots of fascinating science being done by very smart people around the world. And and also just you know, DM me if they have questions or suggestions or if they want to chat.
1: Very good, Well, Simon. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you very much for having me again. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.